0: Should I shift us into some, some true crime and disappearances and whatnot?
1: I was gonna say, well, okay, I do like, and this can be like how we start, I guess, if you want. But I had something that I was like saving to talk to you about, freaking aliens.
0: Tell me. Wait, what aliens? The aliens <laughs> in.
1: No, the, the, like, I I just keep seeing it all over social media. <laughs> This is is fake news. (laughs) I'm going to cry. The worst introduction ever.
0: No. (laughs) Sorry. That just caught me off guard. (laughs) The aliens! <laughs> the aliens! The ones that I told you from Vegas?
1: <laughs> no! Have you not seen this all over social media? That they think that there's that, that the, the government has aliens. What? That they. <laughs> now that they have aliens. Wait. They- Sue, I'm going to throw up. I'm stop, 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 stop. Okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> hold on. Alien discovery. All I keep seeing all over social media, and I don't have time to actually read about it. Okay.
0: Where did you see this? All over, all
1: over Instagram. That some... Okay, I don't even what? know what he does or what his name is. I know he used to work for the government, but that they discovered...
0: <laughs> so every fake news story starts. I know. I don't I know, know what know. he is. Oh. I don't know what he does, okay. but he worked for the government.
1: Okay, are you ready? Former intelligence <laughs> official david grush says unidentified aerial phenomena aka like a ufo have been captured by the u.s government with quote biologics inside of them
0: okay well that's aliens for sure yes wait so i can't
1: believe you haven't seen i was like literally not texting you about this like waiting to bring it up on the podcast
0: no, so, okay, is this just one guy who's like riffing or is this like confirmed by any so, so is he employed currently employed by the government or is he like a disgruntled former employee?
1: I think he used to be. Okay. Okay, let me just see. Okay.
0: So this <laughs> is a I big this is a big story that It's
1: huge.
0: <laughs> What's his name? David Grush, you said?
1: David Grush, like uh Oh, okay, so people are calling him S C H.
0: Oh, people are calling him a UFO whistleblower. Yes. Oh, wow. UFO hearing key takeaways. Oh, my God. This yes. is like big. This is on like NPR, like CBS. <laughs> it's huge. I mean, and then,
1: literally, when asked whether the US government has information about extraterrestrial life, Gru said the US likely has been aware of non human activity since the 1930s.
0: That I do believe. Yeah. But I also don't you find it strange to believe that like this is the first time we're capturing aliens? I feel like that would have been something that happened in the 50s, 60s.
1: Well, I don't know how long this like the quote biologics have been in their possession. Like I think that's the thing. Everybody's like biologics. What? Like how long have we had potentially like alien matter in our hands?
0: He looks a little wacky in these pictures. I he, feel like that's...
1: He, I think that's kind of what people are saying. <laughs> They're like, we don't know if we can trust this. And like, well, is I mean, he blowing like for, like for funsies or is it real?
0: Yeah. Is he going to get a book deal out of this, a podcast? Because I've been there, honey. I, I know the game. <laughs> I
1: mean, we're inviting him on Creep Time, the podcast. You better believe. We
0: absolutely are. That, I cannot tell you the way that that just because I had no idea what you were talking I, about.
1: Well, <laughs> I gave it quite possibly the absolute worst introduction that it could possibly have because i have to tell you my my scope about this has been me at work grinding and i'll look at my phone and see in like a group chat people talking about the aliens and i've seen one video of his congressional hearing where he's talking about it and he says this non-biological or biological
0: Matter that they have. Do you know why are these hearings? I don't even know. Like, why why is why is Congress (laughs) interested
1: in this? What What are they
0: planning to do? Oh my god,
1: creepers! We've just lost all of you, haven't we? I've no, no, no. no. They're
0: so on board. They're here. Oh my god.
1: (laughs) I honestly, y'all, it's been a tough work week. So all of my news has been I've been getting it from like literally Instagram Reels at this point.
0: Um, okay. I mean, some some people get all their news from Twitter because that's the fastest place it breaks. I get all my news from TikTok because that's the first place it breaks. Are you reading? I'm just You're to filling think, in the what? gaps on the story. I mean,
1: like <laughs> I'm actually so curious. I'm like, why is this? There's happening? a whole Wikipedia
0: why? page about it. Well, okay, so let's see. On Wikipedia, according to what Wikipedia says, this could all be faux. It says June 2023, United States Air Force officer and former intelligence official. So he's, you know, credentialed. David Grush publicly claimed the unnamed – oh, that unnamed officials told him that the U.S. federal government maintains a highly secretive UFO recovery program and is in possession of non a non-human spacecraft and dead pilots, is what he said in quotations. <sighs> so he filed his whistleblower complaint back in 2022. Okay, so that's why he's appearing
1: before oh.
0: before the U.S. House, it looks like. Interesting. But even so, it's like, is this just so that the public knows? Like, what is the end game of whistleblowing on this? Because, I mean, if the government has this in their possession, they're probably like, okay, like we should. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't want to know. <laughs> like,
1: Honestly, let me know. I brought it up because I was hoping you had been following it more than me. <laughs>
0: I thought and you were talking we about the
1: misinformation.
0: The ones in the ones in Nevada. I thought you were talking about the ones in Vegas that the I told you about. Men. Yeah, I was like, "Oh, I was like, is there an update on that story?" But you just caught me so off guard. Also, it's <laughs> creepers. It's high creepers by the way. <laughs> Welcome to Creep Time the <laughs> podcast. It's like 98 degrees. <laughs> Stew's burning up. I'm burning up. We're drinking rosé. <laughs> We have to have I, our air
1: conditioning <laughs> off so that it doesn't mess with our audio quality. And we're both in a fever dream right now. And I brought up aliens just to really throw it.
0: Oh, I like lost half my bladder just like from <laughs> you telling me that. That's So, so, so much sorry. to process. But, <laughs> oh my God, let me get us back on track for a sec. That really caught me off guard. Thank you for bringing that up though. Because maybe we'll cover that on another day. <laughs> the David Grush UFO whistleblower. Huh. We, okay, well, first of all, welcome everybody. Welcome back to Creep Down, the podcast uh, with Silas Dean and Stu. We're here. This is going to be a Friday episode.
1: <laughs> I just saw your armpits wet. <laughs> I just saw your armpits wet. <laughs> On air. They On can't air. see me. They can't I know. see me.
0: Outed, outed. Thank oh God my they God.
1: can't see us right now. I mean, I literally have the upper lip sweat right now, is so intense. Like,
0: I th- thank God this isn't like a visual podcast because we <gasps> look like drudged out, wretched, sopping. We lose all of you? 100%. Like, they, television is, <laughs> is a medium for that. This is audio based. We've got faces for radio right now. Let's stick with that. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to think we're plastered too. They're going to be like, Jesus, <laughs> we need to call a meeting for them.
1: I wish it's really just even if even if I'm drinking <sighs> rosé right now it's immediately coming out of my pores. I'm sweating it all yeah. out immediately the second I have it. It's processing
0: very very quickly. Yeah. I um I did want to throw you a curveball today. So I don't know if you <gasps> remembered what was on our list cuz I think we said we were going to do what? Sleepwalking homicide, right?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: I did a pivot last <gasps> minute. So sometimes I'll do like research, like I'll do research way, way ahead of time, like weeks, weeks out. I'm like, oh my god, I want to do this case for like episode like 55 or something random, and I just like collect all these cases. I stumbled upon one, and I was like, so enthralled with the story. And then I actually saw that it was a recommendation. So let me actually find the person who recommended it. Hold on, this is a recommendation from Autumn Baby. Thank you for suggesting this case. Her name is Autumn Baby.
1: I wish it was Autumn, baby. baby. (laughs) I wish it was Autumn, baby.
0: (laughs) She recommended the case of Denise Huber, which is a really, really good case, actually. And she recommended it specifically because she wanted you to react to it. She was like, Stu will lose her mind when she listens to this case. So it's going to be one of those that I'm going to have to tell kind of like a story happening in real time. And it's going to move pretty quick. And it's actually interesting because it's not an unsolved case actually so we don't have theories so i'm just going to run through the story <laughs> so are you ready for this oh i'm ready cuz i'm about to take you on a journey <laughs> oh
1: god okay
0: oh god um Let me i take guess a before we start <laughs> yeah take a sip of the rosé while you do i'll just say thank you everybody again for stopping by if you haven't already please make sure that you stop to subscribe or follow the podcast you can turn on the bell notification and if you could pause this Podcast for ninety minutes, so you can write us a twenty thousand word review on (laughs) Apple Podcasts. That would be so appreciated. We'd be so appreciative.
1: We shouldn't have reviews after after this intro. I I was going to say. I was like,
0: Stu. I was like, (laughs) I'm drunk.
1: (laughs) I wish I was.
0: Oh God. Well. I guess with that, should I? well, actually, there is a top line here. So let me start with the top line, because that's what I wrote. I haven't looked at this research in a couple of days, so I'm a little fuzzy on it. But I'll get through the top line, and then I'll start with our backstory. So the case of Denise Huber. So the story of 23-year-old Denise Huber really starts with a concert back in 1991. Okay, it's coming back to me now. So this was supposed to be a very fun evening, where Denise attended a concert with friends. And then it ended in mystery and devastation for a family that never got answers for years. So she attended this concert on that night. And after dropping off her friend, she set forth on her way back home. This is roughly between 1.30 a.m. to 2.30 a.m. from what we know. She never made it back. And then there was a manhunt that would ensue that would take three years without answers until finally we hit a break in the story. And then we start to piece things together about what really happened. On that night. And I don't love stories like this where somebody's driving alone at night. But that really is where this story starts. Uh-huh. And while researching it, I cannot tell you. Like the wash. I was so like I when I listen to a lot of these like podcasts and I listen to stories or YouTube videos on cases, I walk a lot. Like I'm usually out doing something. Mm-hmm. I had to stop in the middle of the street. Because <clears throat> I if you could have seen me from like a like a sniper cam or something, I was like. Gasping for air with every reveal in this story. It's just a little gut wrenching, but yeah, it really happened with a young woman who was driving home alone in the middle of the night and oh, something God. went very wrong on the road.
1: I'm taken like right back to Brandon Lawson.
0: Yeah, I mean, Kind of similar in the the circumstance of the setup in terms of like car goes off the road, I suppose. I'll get into the full backstory about Denise and like what really happened that night from what we knew from like the jump in 1991 and then what we learned by 1994. I also was doing research for another case, which I, I almost actually swapped it out for this case today because I was like so crazed about it. The Klein Falls Axeman. Have you ever heard of that? <gasps> no. That'll be next episode. Creepers, tune in for the next episode, too, because that one's also going to be a trip.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: But for now, I'm going to focus on Denise. So should I get into a bit of backstory about who she was? Fill you in a little bit.
1: Please And where we are. You know I love the backstory.
0: Well, the backstory, it's important. It is. Exposition is everything, darling. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I promise I'll, like, simmer down for being slap-happy in a sec. (laughs) So let me fill you in a little bit about Denise's story. So she's 23 years old and she's from Newport Beach in SoCal. So she was a college student at the University of California, Irvine, and she was working part-time in a restaurant and department store. And from those who knew her and everybody in the story that I was looking at in research, they said that she was just known as kind. She was intelligent. she, She was a social young woman. And she was just known as the girl with the long brown hair and the bright blue eyes especially in her church community. She was also, you know, very religious with her family. And on the morning of Monday, June 3rd, 1991, so this is the following morning from the concert, her father, Dennis Huber, he gets up, and it's actually kind of an exciting day and I guess a special day for the family because he had just quit his long-term job as a mortgage broker, and he's going to start his own business on this day. So he, it's like a Monday morning, he's kind of apprehensive, he's nervous because it's like the first time in his life that he's like not going to have structure, you know, like it's in his hands and it's a risk. So he starts his day, there's a bit of like nervous energy in the air, start of the week, and almost immediately, I think his wife Iona had already left, but he's up in the, he's up in that morning and he's kind of sensing that something's wrong in his house, like it's almost too quiet. So what, whatever happened, it just like compelled him to go upstairs and check on his daughter, Denise, because obviously he thought she came home late last night from the concert and he's like, why hasn't she come down for breakfast? Why hasn't she, you know, made any noise in her room? Like it's nine, 10, 11 o'clock. So he goes up there and he walks into her room. Her bed is untouched. She never came home. So now he's like a little uneasy because it's kind of out of character for this girl. Um, that she wouldn't have come home and she wouldn't have, like, made a phone call in the morning or something. But he doesn't panic right away. He's like, she's a smart kid. She probably ended up crashing at maybe her friends, you know, because she was, maybe she was drinking a little too much. Or maybe it's possible she got so tired on the way back that she decided I have to pull off the road and sleep for a little bit and kind of, like, wake up in the morning. But surely she's going to give him a call. So the hours of the day start to go by and they never got that call. So then Dennis begins to panic that something's really wrong. And by the time his wife Iona comes home, the mother, they start making phone calls to try to track her down. So the first person they call is Tammy Brown. So Tammy wasn't with Denise last night, but Tammy is like one of Denise's best friends. I think the two met in college. So they figured they were like, if she was going to crash at somebody's house, it probably would have been hers, like her girlfriend's. So they call her and... De- To their dismay, Tammy hasn't seen or heard from Denise. So then they call the guy that Denise was actually with at the concert. This is 24-year-old Rob Calvert. Um, They weren't like romantic partners or anything. I think they were just good friends. Um, They're hoping maybe that like she spent the night at his place or something. Now, according to Rob, he said that last night at the Morrissey concert, it ended and they went out to meet a friend at a cantina in Long Beach just for a quick drink. This is around 1.30 a.m., by 2 a.m. she dropped him off at his house and then she said i'm good to drive and i'm going to head straight back home so this was the last anybody saw of her on that night she was alone in the car so this is when the hubers start to go into like a bit of like a full panic because if the last person who saw her said that she was coming directly back home and she never made it something really bad happened right So they start calling every friend they can think of. They start calling to nearby police stations, to hospitals. There is no record of where Denise went last night. She completely vanished. So maybe we should pause there and just talk about, like, the building panic in that family dynamic. And it's such a horrible setup because you know from the get-go something went very, very wrong It's Mm -hmm. not as simple as, like, she pulled off the side of the road and then, like, by 3 p.m. she's not calling her parents. 4 p.m. she's not calling. Something's off.
1: I'm having such flashbacks to the one time in my life when I stayed out somewhere and I didn't come home and my parents. No. (laughs) I mean, talk about, like... Absolute panic! They almost filed a missing. They tried to like maybe file a missing persons report. Like they were like this close. Oh my god! So I just first of all, where where were you, mom and dad? I'm so sorry. I will forever be in debt
0: to them. For like, (laughs) I was gonna say, I was like, you know, they're gonna listen, so you better apologize. (laughs) I know.
1: know. I'm still apologizing for. I was I was in my hometown, but I had stayed out and like went back with some friends to like a house. Mm And I just fell asleep at the house. Didn't tell my parents. Mm. And the next morning, I think I had like twenty five missed calls. By the time I woke up, like my parents are like, about "Oh my god, called police," uh, as they should have. Well,
0: because once the panic sets in, as a parent, I can imagine yeah. it's just like it, there's no stopping it. It's like a floodgate opening, and you're just you start tapping every resource. Did they call like friends and like parents and stuff? Oh
1: yeah, calling friends. And I mean, think about oh, this though. No. This is nineteen ninety one. Like it at least when I, when worse. I was, yeah, I mean, it's like you were really like just hoping and praying that they show up because I don't know if she had a cell phone, but I guess in 1991, not a, that would have rare. 91. Yeah. No. Like she would have been somebody if she had a cell phone on her. So, I mean, you're just hoping and praying I, your kid comes through I kept door. thinking
0: about that. I kept thinking about that through this, this research. I was like, God, I'm like, it's kind of amazing. Like how much safer. Genuinely, how much safer everybody is with a cell phone for this circumstance of, like, mm-hmm. if something goes wrong on the road, if you're, like, a young woman at night or any young person at night, like, on a, a back road or something, like, just having that extra connection to, like, call for help, so, so vital. Um, But, I mean, this was spelling, like, a lot of trouble, for sure, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that story about you sleeping out, though. I'm going to have to probe Jules about that one a little bit <laughs> later. Hi, Jules.
1: Hi, Mom. <laughs>
0: so what happens next so we've got Dennis Huber the father so he thinks that she was on her way back home and if she was on her way back home that night she probably would have taken the Pacific Coast Highway right and because from Rob's house it's like a straight shot to Newport Beach so it would make the most sense um but what he does he goes out and he's like I'm gonna retrace that pattern with my car to see like if I could spot her car anywhere. Tammy, the friend, thinks that Denise actually probably took an alternate route because she thinks there's another way that you can get back to Newport Newport Beach. It's through the Corona Del Mar Highway, which is kind of like a back road highway. Reason being is it's less patrolled by police if you're driving late at night. So Mm -hmm. it would make the most sense that she would probably take that. So Tammy's like, okay, if you take like Pacific Coast Highway, I'm going to go on the Corona Del Mar Highway. I'm going to do the same thing and I'm going to look. For Denise's car so Tammy's out there she's traveling she's going like really slow down the roads kind of like scanning like every which way like starting to panic a little bit kind of it's that weird experience of like hoping you don't see the worst but at the same time you're looking to find something do you know what I mean of course like that's the panic that's building in her so she's 20 minutes into this drive and she gets to the exit that's going to head towards Denise's house when she spots something out of the corner of her eye it's Denise's car. It's a silver blue Honda Accord that is parked on the shoulder of the highway, and her heart starts racing. So rather than like drive straight to it, she actually was already in the exit lane. So she gets off the highway, and she's starting to have, from what it sounded like, a panic attack, and she's starting to well up, and she gets to a pay phone at a liquor store because, again, nobody has cell phones. So the second she sees it, she's like, I have to alert somebody. She calls the parents. I think Iona. And she tells them she's like I found her car. It's here. So Iona's like, okay, I'm. W- once he comes back, we're gonna rush over there. So now it's starting to get dark outside. But after she dropped that call at the liquor store on the payphone, she gets back in her car, Tammy, and she's like, I'm gonna get back onto the highway so I can go up to the car and look inside. Oh. So she she circles back. She gets back onto the highway and she gets up to Denise's car and pulls up behind it. And she's got the headlights on now because it's really starting to get dark. And once she pulls up, she notices that the back tire is completely flat. So she's already piecing the story together. And she gets this sinking feeling in her stomach as she's getting out of her car to walk towards the driver's side. Like something really bad might have happened here. So she gets up to the driver's side. She kind of cups her hands on the glass of the window and she looks inside and kind of to her relief, she sees that it's an abandoned car, but at the same time, it's it's also another terrible feeling because it's like, where is Denise? And she just described this uneasy feeling while looking inside the empty car that this was suddenly not just an abandoned car, that this was a crime scene in a weird way. So she backs away because she's like, I don't want to touch this any further and disrupt what's here and gets back into her car In tears, thinking she's going to drive off and then call the parents and then tell them that. So as she's driving off, the parents actually show up. She's gone. The parents pull up and they find the car. So they get out. And I think it's her father, Dennis. He goes to the driver's side door um, and goes to open it. It's open. The car was left open. (gasps) And he gets inside. And he's like looking around in there. And first thing he notices, the battery is dead. um, But there are no keys in the car. Headlights can't turn on at all, battery's dead, and all of her belongings are missing, like wallet, purse, everything is gone. The only thing that's left in that car was a rolled up pair of pantyhose that were left in the passenger seat, which would become really vital in this case in piecing the story together. So the Hubers don't know like what to make of it and they're panicking still, so they rush home and this is when they the first time that they file a missing persons report. And they describe the state of their daughter's abandoned car on the highway. That's got to be such, I mean, oh, God, that's got to be the most unimaginable thing to find just like the remnants of your daughter's car. Because you know that like if it was left there, she got a flat or something, she got out and then something really bad happened. Or she's still in that area somewhere off the side of the road and they just hadn't found like, found her.
1: I'm like, first of all, Autumn Baby. You picked a good one because I am thinking like honestly to myself that if I am Denise, that sounds exactly like I would be like, oh my gosh, got a flat tire. This stinks. Let me grab all my stuff just in case I can't get back to my car when Mm -hmm. I go to try to find help. Like, oh my God, this is so, I have such chills. I know that's probably sounds over dramatic, creepers, but like there's something about this as a woman, like something bad happening to you and you're alone and it's like, you got to go find help or figure out how to get home. Like, Oh,
0: it's just the worst pasta, especially in 1991. I could not get that out of my mind. I'm like, she's on a dark back road the Corona Del Mar highway. And I looked at pictures of this and it may, granted it might be a little bit different now than it was, but like, it's not well lit. Yeah. And I'm assuming it was even worse back then. 1991 flat tire, no cell phone, 2.30 2 30 in the morning? Yeah, that's that's a nightmare scenario. Like it's just interesting because I found the dead battery really interesting, and I also found the unlocked door really interesting. And I'll get into it a little bit later um when piecing together the story because what that told me was that she wasn't looking to get out and walk very far because there were emergency phones on the highway. There are a lot of highways that still have those. There was one behind her car and one in front of her car. Not immediately, but, like, within walking distance. I'm going to assume she got out of that car to, like, start walking a little bit to get Mm -hmm. to one of those phones. Thinking she, like, I'll go go there, I'll make a quick call, then I'll get back in the car. Which makes the time frame of what might have happened here even crazier. (laughs) Like. And I know Autumn Baby is cackling at you right now because she knows how crazy this story is going to get. Oh, God. So your reaction to this now is benign compared to what's about to happen. So let's see where we are. Now, by the time police get involved, it's actually 1 a.m. of the same night. So now they're privy to the situation and they show up. And it's no longer being treated at this point as a case of a missing person, like a runaway it's potentially a crime scene like from the Mm get-go, just from how nefarious all of the circumstances are and like the abandoned car, like something clearly happened to her. So they arrive and they start scoping out the scene. I think they spent like hours like looking around the highway because they thought maybe it's possible she got out of the car and then another car hit her and she flew off the side of the road, like something terrible like that. Um, But while they're doing so, they're collecting, you know, different pieces of evidence from the car. They're taking pictures, trying to look for prints and what they piece together while they're searching, you know, everything is that the tire blew out. This is the story. The tire blew out, turned on the hazards, and then she's like, I got to get out and I got to deal with this. She probably took off her pantyhose because they think this was like a common thing that she did while driving. Like it was like a comfort thing where she's like, oh my God, okay, the night's over. Let me like get these off. That was my so first they don't, thought. Yeah, they didn't think it was anything like they were taken off or there was like another guy in the car, maybe not at first at least. Um, So the pantyhose came off um, and those become really vital, like I said, because they have a canine on the scene. So they kind of bunch them up and they bring them over to the dog so the dog the dog can smell. And then within just a few seconds, the canine is like on the trail. Like he's like, yep, I've got a foot pattern, which thank God But these damn dogs. Thank God because they have done so much work to like piece together these stories. This is a pattern we've seen in so many cases now.
1: It's incredible that they can do that.
0: I know. You heard that. Stop. You heard that. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the canines, y'all. Let me pour myself a little more rosé for the canines.
1: Dude, I, creepers. That's the ice cream truck, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. That's the ice cream truck. This Every damn day.
1: ice cream truck. I can't.
0: He'll be back at nine thirty. He's fine. <laughs> <laughs> he knows. He knows what he's good for. He comes around. <laughs> oh
1: my god! He really he's is. Like a a, gen- he's a character on this podcast.
0: He is. He's a We're, gentleman. We got to have him on in this neighborhood. We do. <laughs> i'll see if i can i can convince him (laughs) like what (laughs) so let's see so the canine catches the trail and then starts to move from the front of the car up the road so we know she got out she was on foot and she was walking up the highway probably to that service phone the emergency phone now what's odd is that she does not get very far the trail only goes about 70 to 80 yards ahead of the car before it suddenly stops, which means she got inside someone's car. So it was either a hitchhiking situation or it was a situation where she was abducted and it was incredibly opportunistic. Incredible. But this is devastating news for the family because, again, there's no lead outside of that. So the family... They're heartbroken and they just, they start putting up, you know, whatever money they have. Because don't forget this poor dad, just literally first day he quit his job, like no income, Mm -hmm. starting a new business. So they put up a $5,000 reward for anyone who has any sliver of information. Her church gets involved and they bump it up to $10,000. They end up like putting out flyers, there's press. I mean, anything they can really do to get the word out about Denise Huber and just like get her story on the map. So... Naturally, in the police investigation, the first suspect that they're going to look at was the man she was allegedly last seen with, the friend Robert Calvert. Because why would you not turn to him first, you know? He mm-hmm. said, well, yeah, she, she dropped me off last night, and that was the last I saw of her around like 2 in the morning. So he's brought in for some extensive questioning, and they really probe this kid's life. Um, but everything pieces together. Like his story, his alibi, I guess, really does check out. And it seems pretty corroborated that she dropped him off at 2 a.m., just like he said. And then also, all of the friends and Denise's parents also try to vouch for him and like rule him out because they're like, it just could not have been him. Like, we know him. So he's not really a part of the story. I just want, I didn't want to let that go too far down the road, but I just mm-hmm. wanted to mention that police were like, you, you're the guy. Now, at this point, the press does have a hold of the story, and there's a whole horde of tips that start coming in, um, a rush of people who were like, oh my god, I think I've seen this girl. I think I saw her like with this man, or I saw her doing this. And it mostly turns out to be confusion. I would say the only interesting tip that really comes in talk is a statement, actually, uh, from someone who happened to be driving on the Corona Del Mar Highway that night around 2.15 a.m. So this was right in the window of when Denise's like tire blew out. They said by 215 they definitely saw Denise's car, like they passed it because they saw the hazard lights on. Which gives us a really tight window, you know, because if she said she dropped off Rob shortly, like, you know, right around 2 a.m. And then by 215, she was on the Corona Del Mar Highway and her tires blown out, and she's got hazards on. What a extremely tight window for this opportunistic thing to happen. Mm-hmm where she gets out and someone who just happens to be passing abducts her. It's it's like, it was so chilling reading about that. I couldn't get it out of my head, like how fast, like bad things happen. I don't know. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I keep thinking to myself, somebody was following her.
0: Oh, I I didn't even think about that. That's entirely possible, I guess. Maybe from the concert, you think?
1: Maybe from the concert or just... Maybe I can see why people would bar? think, yeah. like
0: uh, you the know, cantina. Yeah. yeah,
1: it just doesn't make sense. Like you're saying, it would be such a tight window for somebody to be driving by late at night on a back road, see a girl, and go, "Yeah, I'm going to kidnap her."
0: I don't want. I won't spoil anything. Okay, okay. But I do. D- <laughs> but I will say, just to just for clarity purposes, that's exactly what happened. It was opportunistic. Oh, my God. It was a, which is, we've covered cases before where we've talked about this. And statistically, it is so extremely rare that things like that do happen. But we would later learn in this case, it was opportunistic. He I have full body chills. Just like by chance, because it could have even been that her tire blew out. She threw her hazards on and then just waited in the car for another 30 seconds. Don't you tell know? me that. Just, oh, my God. She just happened to be out of the car on foot when a guy drove by and then something terrible happened. Oh my God.
1: Oh, okay.
0: I'm 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 mentally, (laughs) no, I'm
1: gear shifting. Okay. I'm in fire mode.
0: (laughs) Okay. So essentially that's everything that we've got on the case because it does go cold for years. Um, And it's really, it just becomes like a tragic story because these parents are left in with the agony of, That burning question, like, what really happened to their daughter, Denise, that night at this point? Nobody has answers. So they actually couldn't bear to stay in California at this point, and I don't blame them. So Dennis, again, he was living off his savings. uh, And he he never ended up starting that new business, given the circumstances. It just consumed them for, like, a year, like, trying to find Denise. Because they really, the parents held out hope, but I think the parents... We're also wrestling with the idea of like the siblings were starting to properly grieve her. You know, they were approaching that idea that like, you know, now that we're like six months to a year into this and we haven't found anything, maybe we can assume that something bad really did happen to her. And they're just trying to return to normal life. So Dennis and Iona, they pick up everything. They leave California. They move back to the home state of North Dakota. And then three years, fast forward, no answers. Until finally, we're going to get some information that's going to surface, which is going to, I'm going to have to swear, it's going to blow your f***ing lid. Oh what is the timestamp? 58. <laughs> 58.
1: <laughs> 44.
0: All right, give me a second. Let me write it down.
1: <laughs> 58, my heart is racing right now. Oh, my God. I'm putting
0: you through a lot. I'm, this is not a light one. I... I really came out the gate swinging after.
1: No, but you know, it's kind of weird because like it's, it's light just in the sense that there's not a ton of like stuff to go off of. Like it it, it is light in that sense. It's not like so detailed, but it's, there's just the idea that this happened to her and it was such a stroke of bad luck is like sending me right now.
0: It's the worst part about this. Well, this, I mean, the story is quite graphic. Like, when we get into it, we would learn more. But that is certainly one of the worst parts about the story. Just how truly, truly bad place, like, wrong place, wrong time this was. Just horrible. And so rare. I, I just, could, could like, could not believe that. Like, how rare this is for this to happen. But anyway, so three years pass. And then we're finally going to get some information. And it's actually, it's delivered directly to Iona, I believe. But I'm going to backfill you on, like what we learn. So we're going to shift from California and pick up our story all the way out in Arizona where we would learn something very interesting here because somebody has a story to tell. So all the way out in Prescott, Arizona, we'd meet a couple in their 40s. They go by Jack and Elaine Court and they're a little bit older. Um, They also like work on their weekends at the Prescott Valley Flea Market and they sell paint, (laughs) which is kind of like an odd niche, but that's their thing. It's like a very tiny market and they've kind of got it cornered. Now, on a June day in 1994, while they're working at the market, there's somebody new who shows up. It's a man named John Familero. He is tall. He's dark-haired. He has a beard. He's got glasses. Um, And he actually meets the couple because he had previously started up a paint business on his own, but it was not doing well. It was like six months into the business. (laughs) Uh, So he's at the flea market basically to start selling some of his supplies, um, he's trying to get rid of inventory, which like is such an oddly specific thing. Like, I I'll get into it a little bit more, but like how it connected these two people because ultimately they're the ones who were gonna tell this story of what they learned. I'm like, what are the chances this could happen <laughs> over paint? Like
1: it's it's a theme in this whole story. What are the chances? Like just absolutely opportune moments, I guess.
0: Seriously. I I mean so they're chatting with like the court couple or sorry, he's chatting with the court couple and he makes them an offer. He's like, do you want to buy, you know, since I'm trying to get rid of some of my inventory, my um, my colorant. And they're like, yeah, we'll buy that. I mean, we have a monopoly on this flea market. So they make a plan for July 9th that they're going to follow him to his Prescott home. They're going to pick up the colorant. Now they arrive at the house and they pull up in the driveway. And now this is I forgot about this part of the research. Oh, my God, this is going to send you. So they pull up, but the first thing they notice on the side of the house is he has a giant rider truck parked on the property. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> for anybody who doesn't know, even though we've talked about it like 24-7. When we were on tour years ago, one of the chief vehicles we traveled with was a rider truck. <laughs> so when I read that, I was like, enough is enough.
1: I really don't want to be connected to this person in any way. And the fact that, again, opportune. That the one thing that could really, like, one of the random freaking things.
0: It's random. It's just truck. so random. The rider truck. Uh, so, there is a rider truck. Um <laughs> And they arrive and they're struck by the rider truck immediately, as I would be too, because <laughs> to their knowledge, when they see it, they're like, rider trucks are like rental trucks, right? They're like, that's odd that like he has that parked in his yard because uh, it's like pretty run down too. like, it looks like it's been there for a while. And like, you can see that the grass is kind of grown around the tires and like there's a padlock on it. Like that's his. And they're like, well, that thing's got to be like stolen, right? Like there's no way he bought a rider truck. But the weirdest thing about this truck is there's an extension cord that's running through the back of it to the ground, right? So they're, like, kind of, like, finding it strange. And they're like, okay, this is probably, like, a mobile drug lab is what we're thinking. This is probably, like, a meth lab. So they decide we're going to get the paint, like, the colorant. But we're also going to, like, write down the plate number so we can report this. So they come inside. It's like, super fine. They pick up the colorant in the backyard, I think. And then they call the cops. Now, to their description... The cops are also like, yeah, that sounds like a mobile meth lab, and they actually run the plate, and sure enough, it is a stolen rider truck. So the cops end up obtaining a search warrant because they think, okay, we're going to go there. It's going to be a drug bust on this guy's property. So they end up coming back on June 13th. It's a horde of cops, and they start banging on the guy's door. Nobody answers. He's not home. So they descend upon the house. They're like, okay, fine. We've got the warrant. So people are going through the backyard. They get the door open and then they focus on the rider truck because again, that's where they think the majority of these drugs probably are. But one of the first things they notice once they get into the house is that this guy is a hoarder, like a bad hoarder. There are mountains of stuff in this place, which is crazy because he just moved there. I think like six months ago, he told them. In like six months, what he was able to accumulate in his home is just crazy. So, anywho, they're scoping out the place and the team goes outside with a locksmith because they're going to focus on the truck. They snap off the lock and they lift the hatch door to the back expecting to see a cook lab. But that's not what was in there. I'm sorry, I can hear the gasping.
1: (laughs) Okay, I'm ready.
0: They get the door open. And the team looks inside, and it's pretty dark. Like They can't really make out like what they're looking at at first until their eyes adjust. And in the back of it, towards the end of the truck, they notice that it looks like a fridge is in the truck connected to the extension cord. So they get inside. They go back to the fridge. And once they get closer, they're like, oh, this isn't a fridge. This is like some kind of a big industrial freezer. So they open it up. And Don't. inside, there is an there's an assortment of plastic white and black bags that are kind of shoved inside the fridge. And they start looking around and they notice at the bottom of the freezer, it looks like there's dried blood at the bottom. Now their first thought, they're like, oh, well, this is probably like a frozen animal, like frozen animal meat. That's not very uncommon or worrisome for this area and probably the type of guy this is. So as they peel through the plastic bags and they open it, It exposes the frozen, open-eyed remains of a young woman with brown hair and blue eyes. Almost perfectly preserved and frostbitten, all on the edges of her skin. The skull had been beaten in so badly that brain matter was exposed. This was the discovery of a horrific murder. We have to pause there because I know I just sent you... To oh Helen, back. I'm my sorry for that.
1: God, it's really all Autumn Baby's fault.
0: Autumn Baby, it's not
1: even yours.
0: You're right. So I'm Autumn, gonna blame baby. you, Autumn Baby.
1: <laughs> um, it's not a laughing matter. Oh my! When I heard this on the God. streets too,
0: when I was listening,
1: yeah, this must have been when you stopped. This
0: was this was the moment I I was choking for air. I could see other people like on the the road looking at me because I was like, Oh my God! I'm screaming horrific
1: i mean i feel nauseous right now like that's how i have been able to visualize this story so well i don't know why
0: but same when i was yeah same yes
1: it's so like i have a whole like scene in my brain right now that just i feel like i'm there which is so weird i i i cannot imagine like it's giving me like dahmer vibes honestly
0: it's is how I feel.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, I have full body chills right now.
0: It was, well, I'll get into some more detail about what they found within this bag. Because, of course, they're all shocked. Because nobody, nobody had even the slightest suspicion that they were going to uncover a murder today. They thought it was a drug bust. So to go in to a truck that is completely dedicated to the preservation of human remains was incredibly shocking for the entire team but as you can imagine everybody goes into pandemonium so immediately they're like stop touching everything this is a crime scene like a murder scene possibly so then everybody just starts like going inside because they're like okay we're gonna have to start like looking around for like murder weapons or like evidence because again this is a hoarder's house so it's absolutely insane inside in the midst of all of this um Famarello, I think I spelled his name wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Famarello. The guy, John, he comes home and he finds all these men in his house, and surprisingly, he doesn't panic. And he actually just like walks up to them and he's like, "What's like, what's going on?" kind of thing. And that you know, they arrest him, and but they don't tell him right away what for. They're just like, "You're under arrest." Um, And then I think at the beginning of his interrogation, he's actually really cooperative because he doesn't know what exactly he's been arrested for or that they found the body. He thought maybe he was arrested for stealing the truck, which is crazy. So he's like in interrogation thinking like, oh, this is for a stolen rider truck. He's like, I'll be able to get out of it. And then he's like, I can explain that. He's like, I've just had like really big problems with like trying to return it. And then I had this thing happen kind of thing. Like He's going to talk his way out of it. The second they're like, and what about the body that you've been keeping in the truck? Mute mute and he says i want a lawyer so then we go on to what they found inside the house so they almost gave up actually because the hoard was so intensive they're like we're never going to find anything in here like it's just a, a bunch of junk until they get to the basement and they found a self-dug hole into the foundation of the property which contained this str- strange collection of like a bizarre identifying objects like IDs for people and like different belongings of various women. So they're kind of like going through all of these IDs and they start tracking down every single woman they can find and they find everybody. Some of them are like past girlfriends of this guy. Some of them are women who never even met him. And they're like, I don't know how he got my scarf And like, I don't know how he got my belongings. Like that's terrifying. But some of the stories from the women who did know this guy are terrifying like describing him as he's abusive like sadistic assailant like there was one woman I think an ex-girlfriend who got chained up to a window um, nude in like a hotel room or something while he assaulted her like just very dark stories that he's a sadistic human being but there is one extra ID in there that they find for a woman they cannot track down Denise Huber So this is because at this point when they found those remains, they didn't even make the connection because it was just a random woman with brown hair and blue eyes. But this prompts the medical examiner to thaw the body and then take a print, which is matched to a print of hers that was found on her driver's license. It is a 100% match. Those are the remains of Denise Huber, the girl who was abducted in 1991 on that highway. He put her in his freezer. So we would later piece together what the story is here. But I mean, maybe I should stop first and just ask you about that reveal and just, was it what you expected?
1: No. I mean, it, like, no. I am totally blindsided by this. I, I feel like I'm in the Silence of the Lambs. I feel like I'm watching Dahmer. Like, I feel, I mean, this is like serial
0: killer feeling to me. Yeah. Well, it's crazy because she is the only woman he's ever killed, which is hard, Like. Well, it's horrible I, for anyone well, to kill, but he kind of fit the profile of a serial killer in my mind.
1: He he, for sure, I believe would have become one had he not been caught because he has all the like hallmarks of. Clearly, he's mentally he's got problems, yeah. and uh, like the hoarding, and also just the narcissistic idea that like they thought that it was he thought that they were arresting him
0: just for the oh truck. Your brain didn't go. The the stupidity. Yeah.
1: I I think it's, I, I think that the narcissism and serial killers has always fascinated me that they will go till the very last second of believing their own myth until the jig is up. Like they, like it blows my mind. They do not have something in their brain chemically. They don't have that thing that you and I would have where we would start to immediately freak out if somebody found something that we know contained something that was incriminating like
0: you're very right no that's 100 true there is a consistent pattern of like narcissism and arrogance in most of these guys yeah except for the weepy voice killer well actually no he's a narcissist as well do you know the weepy voice killer
1: well i'm gonna assume based on weepy voice that he (laughs)
0: Maybe he isn't. <laughs> But he was a narcissist. He, he was like famous because he was killing women. But after every woman he would kill, he would call 911. And you can listen to all these recordings. I do a fantastic impression of them. Oh. He, he would call and he would like cry about what he did to 911. And it's really chilling to listen to. And like the people, like the dispatchers, it's always like a woman who's like, calm down. Like shut the hell up. Like, Because he's so whiny. Like, he's like, I just killed a woman. I don't know what to do. Like, it's just, it's annoying and people can laugh at it. But it's kind of haunting to listen to that voice. To hear about, like, the dichotomy of, like, somebody who thought they would get pity out of people for what they did. You know?
1: I I listened recently. I wish I could recommend it to Creepers. I can try and find the episode. But um, it was a... podcaster that i love pia baroncini but she her podcast has nothing to do with true crime but her someone in her family is a serial killer profiler and like oh. studies the minds of serial killers like will literally sit across in them in a jail cell and like talk to them about why they did what they did oh, and like help police try to better understand like when they're investigating certain murders i'm mm-hmm. just like Hearing her talk about how narcissism is such a through line through it, but then there there are cases like this weepy,
0: the um, weepy voice killer, weepy
1: voice, or like honestly Jeffrey Dahmer was this way that their thing wasn't even like a narcissism thing. It was just like like for Dahmer he had been abused his whole life and it was a weird like uh, attachment thing where he just wanted to be close to somebody and that's why he would kill them.
0: Had he been abused? I don't think, okay, I was always confused about Dahmer's story. I promise I'm going to get us back on track to piece this case together. But I always read that, like, Dahmer's, like, obsession with, you know, killing in, like, the male human body and, like, the male physique was, like, a weird, like, anomaly. Like, there was nothing that could really trace it back to any kind of serious abuse. Was he abused? Because I must have missed that.
1: I don't think he was, like, physically abused. But I know his mom was, like, an addict. And then his dad was very cold and like he did oh, really? not have a loving family for sure did not have a loving family his his mom and his dad would have like I don't know if they were actually abusive fights together like physical but I know that they had like very intense interactions and like a little kid that a little kid should not be exposed to his was really just more about feeling lonely than wanting to like I think he, he honestly killed because he just couldn't stand the thought of this body not being near him, like the one that he had gotten in his presence, whereas oh. like somebody like this is just killing probably because there's a an, an anger there or a wanting to feel powerful. His his wasn't that he wanted to feel powerful. He just wanted to feel like there was somebody with him comforting him. Oh,
0: that's so dark and terrifying. Which is
1: so scary. Like the brain I... is... <laughs> Oh, my God.
0: I remember reading about him um, because when he was young, I think a lot of the the fascination people would cite with Dahmer and like the human body or like anatomy and bones actually came from his father because his father was a scientist. Yes. And when Dahmer was little, he used to play with like animal carcasses and bones. Mm-hmm. And I think it was partially encouraged. I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was partially encouraged by his father because his father thought, oh, he could, he wants to be a scientist yes, one that's day. that's exactly what happened. He's taking yeah. a scientific interest, but, like, he's like a child who's developing a morbid fascination with, like, bodies in a weird way.
1: Yeah. Talk about, like, opportune, like, just the wrong place at the wrong time. I honestly think Wrong that circumstances, that's, yeah. I think that's what happened with him, truly. I think he, his mental—his his brain development was at this cross— uh, like crossroads where, right at the time that he was going through all this like really awful turmoil at home, he developed this fascination with like death and bodies mm-hmm. and even though they were animals, but like it just did not both. Well, that's well. how it starts for yeah. A that's how it starts. Animals yeah. is usually
0: the precursor. Mm-hmm. I I thought about doing this and we should do it for an episode. I have always been so perplexed by the idea of children. Who kill because that is actually a very a shockingly like common thing um and i did research in the past on like some of the most prolific there are some serial killers that are children which is crazy to me so like to imagine like and you know what's crazy is some of the ones that i'm thinking about a lot of them have histories of like abuse and like terrible situations at home there are some of them that don't which shocks me because i'm like what Drive What, happened? what drive? Yeah. Well yeah, like what drives you? Like what happened there? Like I'm thinking of one off the top of my head, Graham Young, was one of the youngest serial killers. He was a serial poisoner from like age seven or eight. He was like a loner as a child, very, very alone, but would read a lot. and he took a very specific interest from a young age in chemistry. so he was reading a lot about how to make poisons and he was poisoning his family poisoning his stepmother. I think he sent his sister into like the ICU. He eventually killed one of his family members and he was put away for like years until he was an adult. And they were like, we think, you know, through therapy, he's been rehabilitated. We think that he's okay to, you know, be released into the world because he was very young and he was struggling, you know, with something going on inside of him. So they release him back into the world. But again, he, it's difficult to assimilate because he's been institutionalized for most of his developing years. So he gets a job at a factory, puts himself in charge of coffee duty. No. Still has that inherent knowledge of like how to poison people. He attempted to poison 70 people at one company. And I think he was almost successful with like one or two of them. He like got them close to their grave. It still was within him to kill people.
1: That's so, it's like a power thing for I think most killers. It's it's just- having but to control start at seven
0: or eight oh my god yeah. like I couldn't yeah. understand that the psych the psychology behind that is crazy no sorry I know I, I took us way off but no, I'll get back I, that to was the story on me <laughs> honestly no I, I think we will do that for another episode because I have a few um there are some really really prolific young serial killers that just blow my mind I I find it very hard to wrap my head around that but I'll piece together what we know of of Denise Huber's story just to sort of bookend this So what would we learn through the investigation tracing back to 1991 about this guy, John? So he was living back in California when this happened. And he happened to be renting out like a storage unit slash warehouse, I guess. It wasn't really clear like what was happening. But he took that opportunity late at night. He just happened to be driving on the Corona Del Mar highway, was not following her. And it was just the worst timing of like the girl just got out of her car was probably going to make that call, like I said, then get back in her car. Got out of her car. He happened to be walking. And this part of the story was kind of murky, and I guess we'll never really know what happened because it's from his word. But he claims that she got into his car because maybe he offered to drive her to a phone or something or drive her to a place that was a little more well-lit because it's so late. I think she got into his car, and then he struck a blow to her head with some kind of a weapon. Um, I think I read that it was some kind of a knife, but I think it was the dull side, like the handle. Uh, So he struck a blow to her head, which I think knocked her out and then took her, opportunistic, to this warehouse. And we pieced together the other part of the story from some of the wounds found on her body because it wasn't just that her head was bashed in. She had some pretty bad defensive wounds on her hands, which would suggest that he tried to assault her in that warehouse, and she started to fight back. And I think from his story, she hurt him pretty bad during this altercation. But it was because of her fighting back that he actually took the same object, and then he struck her head 30 times until he reached brain. (gasps) Now, police, once they hear about this, they do eventually trace back to that warehouse that he was renting at the time, and they use UV light to inspect for blood. And to their description, it was... Coated, Even though it was years later and the whole place had been cleaned, the remnants of that blood was floor, walls, ceiling, everywhere. Whatever went down in there was just unimaginable. So from the time that he murdered her, he then started to rent a storage unit where he requested 24-7 electricity, still in California, and he put a freezer in there to preserve her body. Reason being is because of his hoarding tendency. Once he killed her, he couldn't let her go. Mm. He had to keep her. Like, he had to keep everything. So he's keeping her in this storage unit, possibly for like a year, I think, or maybe more. And then eventually he's planning to move to Arizona. So he buys and transfers her body to a meat freezer, like one that would lay horizontal, pays two teenagers to drive it in a truck from California to Arizona and tells them, You have to stop every two hours to plug it in to keep it cold. But he tells, and it's got a lock on it. He tells them, you're transporting elk meat. It's very valuable. So you cannot let this get get cold. They were driving human remains, these kids. They had no idea. From Cali to Arizona. So then once he's in Arizona, it's just putting her body in that freezer that's locked away in the stolen rider truck. And he just keeps her there. But eventually he knows, I can't keep her in this freezer forever. So he starts digging that hole in the foundation that I was talking about under the house because he's going to put all of the evidence of all the women and the body in there and just like put the whole thing to bed and never think about it again. But he never gets around to it because he can't part with the body. So after all those years, she was just found. It's devastating, you know, to think of what happened to her. But in an odd way, this does give the family... The closure they were looking for, as horrific as it is, because really what was gnawing at them after they assumed that she was dead, after, you know, year one or two, was just whatever happened to her, what happened to Denise. So he is eventually taken to court. He's tried in California. And he receives the death penalty, actually, in Cali for the abduction and the murder of Denise Huber. But shockingly, he has not been put to death. He is still alive because the death penalty in California is tricky because lethal injection, I believe, is the only legal way in California that you can put someone to death. But it recently, I guess around this time, or sorry, maybe maybe back then is when it happened, lethal injection was ruled inhumane. But there is no other mm-hmm. alternative that is legally approved for the death penalty at this point, which means everyone who is on death row is just going to stay there for now indefinitely. Currently, there are 58 other Orange County inmates who are all on death row, none of which who have plans to actually be put to death. And that's really what we have for the story of Denise Huber. In one like final quote that I'll paraphrase from what her father said, which really, really hit me in the gut He just talks about all of the victims, both living and not um, his daughter, uh, who suffered under this guy, John. And he said, you know, some of them have died, Denise, and some are still walking like us. (laughs) And that just killed me when I heard that.
1: That's actually amazingly selfless of him to say, because all I kept thinking about while you were describing him transporting the human remains or having those teenagers do it was, I think we oftentimes ask ourselves like, is what we oftentimes say, like it's so unfair to these families that they don't get the closure that they deserve. But in an instant like this instance like this, I wonder if the parents, I think of course they want to know that their daughter is actually dead so that they're not hoping to find her. But Mm -hmm. I have to be quite honest, the thought as a parent of knowing that my daughter's body was beaten and then, you know, chopped up and whatever and frozen and transported around like elk meat. I
0: know. I know. Is
1: so foul. Like, I don't know if I could actually sleep like knowing that that's what happened to my daughter. Like I almost just would want to know that she's dead and that's it. Like I, you I wouldn't just want the details. Yeah. yeah. I honest to God, I don't know. Like I just, and so I'm saying that because like kudos to her dad for being that selfless to take, you know, obviously talk about his daughter, but then also the other victims that didn't come anywhere close to the torture that his daughter had to go through. Like,
0: whew. well, I think he was also talking about their family. I I mean, Mm. he was speaking about how they are, they too are victims of this man's terror because of like what you're saying, what he left them with. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He he left them with the scars of knowing a fate worse than death, which was the atrocities of what this man did to her in like her final moments. Because what they really learned was that she died scared and she died (sighs) fighting which was probably the worst thing they could learn because I think at this point they had already accepted that Denise was dead. She wasn't coming back, whatever happened to her. I think the hope at that point was that it was just painless or it was quick or like whatever you do to rationalize, like I just hope no, like she didn't suffer. But to learn of just how horrific it was what this guy did and again, like how reactionary it was too because it was really, I don't even know that he planned to fully do this in that moment. You know, I don't think, I thought maybe he would take her to the warehouse and whatever horrible thing he was going to do to her. I don't know that he planned to kill her until she started to fight back. And she was really starting to, you know, get some jabs at him. Like she was going to, it was going to be him or her kind of thing. And then he just struck her in the head repeatedly. (sighs) But truthfully, I mean, there are no heroes per se in the story. I don't want to give too much credit to like the, people the court couple who like showed up and they were like let's report that rider truck but they were the people who like caught that at the right like you said opportunistic right time right place caught that truck and they were like you know what that looks weird let's write down the plate number and just report it for good measure because it could very well have been they wouldn't have hold on sorry there's an ambulance flying by (laughs) it could very well have been that they saw that and they were like okay that's weird but like not our business not our problem And then he would have transported that body to the foundation of his place, buried it. Nobody ever would have found it. Her case would remain unsolved.
1: That is so crazy that they all because of paint, like who sells colorant at a flea market? I mean, it is this is the most just like luck of the draw kind of case I feel like that we've done
0: and you never, I've never heard this case anywhere. No. Autumn Baby, I don't know where you dug this one up. Yeah. But how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> this is so much. <sighs> oh, that is it. That is the story of Denise Huber. Thank you so much for sitting through, because I know that was a, a heavier one than what we're used to doing.
1: I, I mean, that was, i like I said, I was like so, I was just visualizing that. I felt like, honestly, I was like in it.
0: I felt like that was a movie. <laughs> It kind of has to be told like that. Like, it has to be, like I was saying, it has to be told kind of like the Tika Adams case. You got to tell it like a story instead of like, these are the facts of the case. Like, this is what happened in chronological Mm -hmm. order. It's nuts. Talk to me about aliens. Get my mind off this. (laughs) (laughs) Creepers. We'll we'll give a little reprieve. Yeah. (laughs) Um. You just wait until the next episode when I talk to you about the Axeman from Klein Falls. Oh, oh. my God. Because that one, I'm also going to have to tell like a story like this. You're going to be flying. You're going to need to be sedated. <laughs> I'm going to send you something. I need to
1: be sedated now. I need to be sedated and I need to be in air conditioning. <laughs> I need to
0: be in I'm air conditioning. I'm just con- telling
1: you, Autumn, baby. <laughs> the second something? we wrap, stop. Do you see- Oh, my God. You're drenched. The second I can't we wrap, I'm going to go blast it on turbo. And I want you, Autumn <laughs> Baby, to be envisioning my face over that turbo blast of air.
0: Just, you know what I do? I stand over the AC and I <laughs> yeah. I lift my shirt over it. So the shirt felt like balloons up. Of course. It cools the whole bot. It's what you have to do.
1: <laughs> I wait. Now I can make you laugh. I used to have, when I did theater, there was a musical director in my town. RIP, she was the best. But she used to, she's no longer with us, but she used to...
0: I got that from the RIP. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't think you were like, careers in the grave, honey. <laughs> I, was, like, I think I she's passed. Be, okay, good. <laughs>
1: just want to be clear. Um, And she was the best, and everybody loved her. But she would sit, she was an older woman, and she would sit in front of her Keyboard and we used to rehearse in similar to our tour rehearsal space, like no AC, no. so bad illegal. in the summer, illegal in the south, and like we were all just dying. But she used to have a fan right up her skirt while <laughs> she played the piano. It was the best I mean,
0: a woman after my own heart. <laughs> I was
1: just saying, and I'm <laughs> that's about to be me, that.
0: honey. I know that's about to be me. <laughs> god bless her what god a legacy to leave freaking
1: bless her honestly it was the greatest thing i've ever seen ingenious
0: i'm going to put one under my desk and i'm also going to get one of the little <laughs> handheld ones there's yes. ones you can like strap around your neck that are just perpetually hitting your face
1: i think we need to strap them to our mics
0: <gasps> great idea
1: i'm sure we, the we listen back to an episode it's it. just yeah. like we're like in a windstorm it's reporting like, from <laughs> the
0: arctic yeah <laughs> Well, because it is scorching hot, I'm going to wrap us up early. But thank you so much, Creepers, for listening. We are so, so grateful. That was a really juicy case. Thank you again to Autumn Baby. We're going to be back next Friday with a really, really juicy episode. So stick around and we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, Creepers. Salutations.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, what were we
0: going to say last week? We were going to say goodbye and good luck. And good luck. I remembered it. Honestly, good
1: luck to us cooling the hell down. Good luck. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. (laughs)